The English Eccentric by E. O. Higgins In 1765, a distinguished French scholar by the name of Pierre-Jean Grosley visited England for the first time and was struck by the level of eccentricity he observed in the natives. Writing home on the subject, he noted that this unusual behaviour he had observed could be attributed to a mixture of fogs, beef and beer, aggravated by the tedium of the English Sunday. But what is eccentricity? Eccentricity is that sort of behaviour in individuals that is considered odd, unusual or quirky. It describes an often unintentional breaking away or dismissal of the social norms, to pursue avenues in life that are often considered beyond normal priorities. The writer Edith Sitwell declared that many are called eccentrics because they are entirely unafraid of and uninfluenced by the opinions and vagaries of the crowd. And she'd know. Her father, Sir George Sitwell, invented a handgun for shooting wasps, a musical toothbrush, and wrote the definitive history of the fork. The eccentrics we'll meet in this podcast series are often people with corkscrew minds, peculiar obsessions, and largely incomprehensible outlooks. They straddle both sexes and all social classes. Some of their stories are famous, but most are unjustifiably obscure. But hopefully, what they all are is worth a listen. Joanna Southcott 1750-1814 The Woman of the Apocalypse It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. Spiritual revelations were conceded to England at that favoured period. As at this, Mrs. Southcott had recently attained her five-and-twentieth blessed birthday. And so begins Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities. Modern readers would not necessarily be familiar with the name of Mrs. Southcott, but at the time Dickens penned those famous lines, she and the mysterious box bearing her name were a huge cause célèbre throughout London. However, the first 42 years in the life of a woman who would go on to make countless newspaper headlines, get name-checked in a novel by Charles Dickens, and be unflatteringly portrayed on a regular basis by the caricaturist George Cruikshank seem to have been largely uneventful. Joanna Southcott was born in rural Devon in 1750, the daughter of a farmer. A quiet girl, she would help out the family by dutifully carrying out the farm's dairy work. Following the death of her parents, Southcott went into service, working for many years as a domestic servant at a large manor house in Exeter. However, things at the house apparently got uncomfortable when she rebuffed the overtures of an amorous footman and was eventually dismissed by her sensitive employers on the grounds that she was growing mad. Though in fairness, it seems like there may have been some justification for them thinking this. 
though raised in the faith of the Church of England. Following her dismissal, in around 1792, Southcott decamped to the Wesleyan Church in Exeter. To this congregation she announced that she was a prophetess, and accordingly wrote divinations in rhyme using a process of automatic writing. Southcott was keen to keep the Anglicans on side though, and wrote to Joseph Pomeroy, the vicar of St. Q in Cornwall, who had himself publicly warned of dark days ahead. Pomeroy received Southcott into his parish and read through some of her written prophecies, to which he professed to see nothing diabolical. However, on a subsequent visit, Southcott spoke urgently to Pomeroy of impending events of an apocalyptic nature. Confused and somewhat alarmed by her almost desperate earnestness, Pomeroy suggested that she have some of her writings examined by a jury of clergymen. Southcott duly sent Pomeroy a number of her prophecies to be examined. In one, she had predicted that the Bishop of Exeter, who was at that time in rude health, would cark it before Christmas, only for this to come to pass when he unexpectedly died on the 12th of December. She also predicted that French revolutionaries would conquer Italy, which seemed ludicrous enough until an army led by a young general named Napoleon Bonaparte did just that. Southcott quickly followed up on this success by insisting that she was the woman of the apocalypse, as described in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. It was a bold claim. If correct, it would mean that she would give birth to a male child that would be spirited away to heaven to avoid being devoured by the devil, who would, of course, be manifesting himself as a dragon. If Southcott wasn't really the woman of the apocalypse, it did seem likely she'd struggle to pull that off. Despite a small army of devoted followers, Southcott realised that she was rather provincial in Devon. Moving to London, she quickly made a name for herself selling Seals of the Lord, which would ensure the owner's place among the 144,000 people that would be elected to eternal life. In the Wesleyan faith, heaven has limited space, and as a consequence, prices were high. Her mission continued to grow despite one embarrassing setback. A follower named Mary Bateman had obtained a seal from Southcott and stated that, as a consequence, her hens had started laying eggs which were marked with inscriptions announcing the return of Christ. When these claims were subsequently investigated, it was discovered that Bateman had worked as a spiritual healer in the Yorkshire area for years, and had cruelly fleeced a superstitious couple named Perigio by selling them increasingly expensive charms. When the couple's money had eventually dried up, she then made them eat puddings laced with mercury chloride. Arrested for the murder of Mrs. Perigio and sentenced to be hanged, Bateman was still professing to be one of Southcott's sealed followers which naturally caused many people to view the movement with some suspicion. Regardless, Southcott's prophetic pamphlets continued to sell well, and her number of devoted followers continued to grow. In 1812, a legacy from a disciple gave her financial independence, and she purchased a beautifully appointed house in Manchester Street, in London's fashionable Marlebone district. Reaching her 64th year, Southcott's whole The Woman of the Apocalypse stick looked like it might be quietly forgotten, when suddenly it was claimed that she was pregnant with the new Messiah. 
Since Southcott was a sexagenarian virgin, this could probably be viewed as two miracles in one. Southcott prophesied that the birth date would be the 19th of October 1814, but the day came and went and a baby failed to appear. Pressed for answers, many of her London followers, a group that by this time had swelled impressively to incorporate around 100,000 people, claimed that the new Christ had in fact been born, but that it had immediately ascended to heaven when it observed the lack of faith in the common Londoner. Though it still wasn't clear if any dragons had shown up. With London still thinking on its sins, Southcott herself quickly went to meet her maker, with some of her followers even claiming she had died in childbirth. The official date of her death was given as the 27th of December 1814. However, it is believed that she died some time before that, and that her supporters kept her body under observation, believing she would be raised from the dead. When her body began to decompose, they decided a Christian burial might be the better option after all. A post-mortem examination concluded that Southcott had actually been suffering from dropsy, which caused internal flatulence and glandular enlargement of the breasts, giving the appearance of pregnancy. She was buried in a churchyard in London's St John's Wood on the 1st of January 1815. Due to the furore that surrounded Southcott's death, it was decided that her funeral should be carried out in strict secrecy. However, even in spite of these precautions, it still didn't run particularly smoothly. Parson Tozer, a paid-up Southcotian, and one of the League of Officials that had attended her autopsy, took offence with the officiating priest at her funeral, complaining mid-service that it had not been done properly. The priest, who had evidently taken on Southcott's funeral under some kind of duress, responded that he had, in fact, read all the customary prayers for the dead. Toza remained unsatisfied and opined that the customary prayers were simply not sufficient for such a holy woman and prophetess. Apparently this touched a nerve with the priest, who raged in front of the entire congregation, I trust I will never again have to officiate at the funeral of one who has lived by practising imposture and fraud, uttering blasphemies, and who then died unrepentant. It was quite the send-off. As a gift bestowed to the faithful, Southcott left behind a sealed trunk, now known, rather prosaically, as Joanna Southcott's box. Though the contents were unknown, Southcott's instructions for it were delineated exactly. The box could only be opened at a time of national crisis, and only then in the presence of all 24 bishops of the Church of England, who should ready themselves for the event by studying Southcott's prophecies for seven days and seven nights. Southcotians, and indeed many other religious groups, appealed to the Episcopate to open the trunk during the Crimean War, and then again during the First World War aware that the national emergency condition had clearly been met. They didn't. The fate of the box is now unclear. However, in 1927, psychic investigator Harry Price claimed that he had come into possession of it. The box having been conveniently sent to his laboratory by an undisclosed source, and that upon doing so, 
the undisclosed source had immediately fled to America. Hmm. A prolific publicity seeker, Price had the box opened in front of a crowd of journalists, and in the presence of a single, unenthusiastic cleric, the Bishop of Grantham. He later wrote up the event in his memoir, Leaves from a Psychist's Casebook, 1933. In it, he claimed the box contained only oddments, bric-a-brac, and some inconsequential books and papers. Among the oddities being a 1796 lottery ticket, a woman's nightcap, and a horse pistol. However, many South Cotian groups have claimed that the trunk opened by Price was a fake, and continued to press for the true box to be opened. The Panacea Society, a religious group founded in 1919 that follows the teachings of Southcott, and also attests that the Garden of Eden was located in Bedford, claimed to still have possession of the true box. According to the Society, it is stored in a secret location, and its whereabouts will only be disclosed once those pesky Church of England bishops finally agree to get their act together. An advertising campaign on billboards and in British national newspapers, most notably the Sunday Express, was run throughout the 1960s and 70s by the Panacea Society in an effort to persuade the 24 bishops to have the box opened. Their snappy slogan was war, disease, crime and banditry, the stress of nations and perplexity will increase until the bishops open Joanna Southcott's box. Despite all this, the bishops still refused to play ball. There was a brief spike in interest in the contents of Southcott's box at the turn of the last century. However, the urgency to have it opened has dropped off significantly since 2004, the year that the self-styled prophetess had announced heralded the Day of Judgement. If her prophecy was correct, then it must have been a fairly muted affair. Southcott left a legacy of oddity behind her. But, not to be outdone, many of her modern-day followers believe that the baby that Southcott definitely gave birth to in 1814, has now returned to the world, inhabiting the body of Prince William. Next on the English Eccentric. The man that don't give a fuck. Over here. Hello, it's E.O. Higgins here. Or Edward, my friends. I'm joking, of course. I don't have any friends. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the English eccentric and my magnificent brown tones. If you fancied supporting the podcast, there are several ways you can. You can follow it on Facebook and Twitter at Fogs Beef and Beer. Or you could write a review wherever you download your podcasts. You can even follow the Patreon by going to www.englishexcentric.co.uk where you'll get early access to episodes, exclusive content, and the opportunity to suggest subjects for future shows. And if you didn't like it, you know, don't listen. In next week's episode of The English Eccentric, I'll be discussing a professional sportsman who preferred to spend his time drinking dry martini with asphalters, 
who missed vital matches because he'd been arrested for impersonating a policeman, and who allegedly did something very unpleasant to Mark Lawrenson's kit bag. Stay tuned. <laughs>